The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. I invite you to turn in your Bible to James chapter 4. A few days ago, I was in Walmart when halfway across the store somewhere, I heard a long, sustained, blood-curdling scream coming from an obviously unhappy toddler. I minded my own business, but a, a woman shopper near me just could not stop making comments about what must be happening. And to me and other shoppers was passing some tones that were laced with harshness and judgmental comments about these parents whom we could not even see. Well, a minute or so later, the crying ceased and we went on our way, but I was reminded by the incident of our frailty, of the challenges of raising children, something that I'm no stranger to, and our tendency to pass judgment to lack any concern for other people, to be slow to compassion, to think only in terms of ourselves, and, and to offer thoughtless comments in other people's directions. We are quick to make judgments, and we are slow to enter into other people's worlds and to apply the gospel of God's grace. Even God's people can fail to humble ourselves when we are called to leave judgment in the hands of God. I read James chapter 4, verses 1 through 12. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive, because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the Scripture says, he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposed the, opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify you, your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, 
but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? This is God's holy and inspired word. Father, you indeed are the one true lawgiver and judge. You have the power to save and destroy, and you grant much grace, and we ask for it that you might give us wisdom and insight into this portion of your word. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. This past spring, during Little League baseball season, I was serving as umpire behind the plate of one of my son's baseball games, and as the opposing batter was up to bat, he hit the ball down the first baseline. And as I observed, the first baseman picked up the ball just before it went foul, touched the base. I called the batter out. Well, it was pretty apparent that the batter disagreed and was unhappy with my ruling as his facial expression and body language carried itself all the way back to the dugout. Well, and then for the next few minutes, I heard grumbling as this batter proceeded to insist to his teammates why he shouldn't have been out and offered critical comments in my direction. I stopped the game. I went over to the dugout and privately addressed this young batter, instructing him that he indeed was out, and that even if I had made a bad call, which does happen from time to time, it was still unsportsmanship-like for him to publicly and openly criticize the umpire, especially an adult volunteer. He humbled himself, apologized, and considered the matter done, and I had a brief conversation with the coach about the incident and to use it as an occasion to remind our coaches about the need for sportsmanship, something that our league had been suffering as of recently. In fact, it was earlier in the season that we had a quite disturbing incident, and in our league, we asked parents to volunteer as the umpire, and on this particular game, none of the parents were willing to step up and serve as the umpire. And in a bit out of desperation, the home team coach asked a boy, the older brother of one of the players, to serve as the umpire. And I was not at this game, but I heard reports that there were parents heckling and objecting to the calls of balls and strikes and even throwing out criticism to this umpire. A 13-year-old boy filling in for parents who were neglecting to fulfill their responsibilities. People like to make judgments and yet do not take responsibility for them. Such is flawed human nature. Whether it's as something as trivial as making judgment calls at a Little League baseball game, or something as profound as a Supreme Court ruling, we live in a judgmental age. I think of the popular television series American Idol, an entire show dedicated not just to the performers with talent, but to the judges and the way they judge, and, and even the, those who watch the show are called upon to judge the judges, even as they judge the supposed talent of these would-be stars. 
I ask you to think about your own response and your observation in our culture in reaction to more recent Supreme Court rulings. The ruling that was issued over a year ago in response to the health care law. The more recent rulings on the Defense of Marriage Act in California's Proposition 8. Think of the more recent and controversial judgment, a verdict rendered in the case between George Zimmerman and Trayvon Martin. We live in a very polarized age where people are quick to pronounce judgments, quick to respond to verdicts and judgments with much anger and much criticism. The Bible does address the issue of judging. The Bible does call upon us to make proper judgments in the pursuing of true justice. But when the Bible speaks of judging believers, even our neighbors, it is largely addressing the issues of pride and the swollen, sinful desires that cloud our own judgment. How do we make proper judgments? How do we resist the tendency towards judgmentalism? And how do we ultimately leave all judgment to God? These are the questions we hope to pursue this morning. And I begin with verses 11 and 12, and then want to work backwards in our text. I begin here where James warns against judgments within the church and judgments made towards those outside the church. James addresses those to brothers and sisters first. He warns us not to speak evil against one another. One another is code language for the family of God, for the body of Christ, for the local congregation. And James insists that it is a grievous thing to speak evil, to commit slander or gossip about or attack another believer's reputation. James says it's the same as judging God's law. You're making yourself not merely a doer of the law, not subservient to the law, but making yourself a judge and making yourself even to be above the law. Well, to put us in our place, James says that there is only one lawgiver and judge, and you ain't him. We have our place under the law and under the God who alone is just. And ends with this rhetorical question, who are you then to judge your neighbor? I think it's highly likely that James, the younger half-brother of the Lord Jesus himself, might be echoing the very words from the Sermon on the Mount. I quote it here from Matthew 7. Jesus says, Judge not, that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use it, will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is the log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First, take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. The Lord Jesus and James the Apostle are addressing the deep issue of human pride, our tendency to magnify the faults and sins of others and to minimize our own. 
our tendency to see clearly the mistakes and problems of other people, but turn a blind eye towards ourselves. We rationalize our own misdeeds, and yet rail against those of others. When we lived in St. Louis while I was attending Covenant Seminary, my wife, Stacy, worked part-time for a, a local PCA church serving in their nursery on Wednesday nights. They had a similar model to ours where families would come for a dinner and, and then afterwards drop off children in the nurseries and the kids' clubs and go to adult programs. And uh, it was a good job for her, for the most part, except for one family. There was one family with lots of children who did not keep a very neat or tidy appearance. And when they would drop off their youngest in the nursery, he almost always had food on him, and more often than not needed a diaper change. And it became so regular that I began to refer to it as a DOA, diaper on arrival. And my wife really struggled with judgmental thoughts towards this family and even was tempted to apply that towards the child, but she asked, why can't they just clean up their kids? Shouldn't there be a church policy to block things like this? Well, my wife did not lobby for a policy change, nor did she confront the family, but she patiently served them and prayed for them. And in time, it just became a matter of service and love to fellow believers in Christ. And since then, we have grown our own family and have to confess we've dropped off a few DOAs ourselves (laughs) in our own nurseries as well. So we understand and beg your forgiveness as well. We're called to love, to bear with one another's weaknesses and frailties, to demonstrate the compassion of Christ. That doesn't mean we never confront It does not deny the need for policies. There's certainly need for correction and order within the body of Christ. But more than these things, we need love, grace, and forbearance. I'm familiar with a church that has an urban ministry, and this church partners with an organization that tries to help single moms. In fact, moms in this culture are are multi-generational single motherhood a place where finding a husband is a dim prospect and where government programs and welfare rules incentivize having children out of wedlock. Well, this, this church invested in a single mom who was a third-generation single mother, and she'd made a profession of Christ, was committed to improving her situation and following a plan of discipleship. And then it was discovered by the church that she was expecting. And this discovery caused division in the church. There were those who felt betrayed. There were those who questioned their investment in her. There were those that wanted to be harsh with discipline and perhaps even cut off support for her. There were others who took a stance of mercy and compassion. And in the end, the church did hold to a policy of mercy, and sadly, some people left the church over it. That was a tough call. How do you make proper judgments in such a situation? And I acknowledge that each case can be unique with its own challenges and opportunities. We realize that people make mistakes. And sometimes we're called to bear with patience, and other times firm discipline may be required. 
It requires wisdom. And yet, the one thing that's very clear to me from Scripture is that we are never to pass judgment on people in a way that makes them inferior to us or makes ourselves superior to them or somehow indicates that they are unworthy of our love and support. I think we need to be careful to keep, to prevent our ideals, our values, and our expectations to be so high and so onerous that they overshadow our call to love, to long suffer with people who can be slow to grow in God's grace. I had a friend in college who had a severe alcohol addiction. It's been a battle for many, many, many years. In going deep with him on what it means to be a Christian, to deny himself, to repent, to keep repenting, and to follow Christ has been a challenge. Another man that I've worked with who had left substance abuse had deceived me and others and returned to it. It's difficult to stay in relationship with people so weak. And it's also very easy to judge people, especially when their weakness is not your weakness. We can be demanding with expectations on those and be quick to give up. What is much harder is to bear with people and to continue to point them to Christ, the one alone who can save and heal them. Well, what about judgments outside the church? Verse 12, after reminding us that God alone is the lawgiver and judge who alone can save and destroy, James asks us this question, who are you to judge your neighbor? Now, a neighbor is not confined within the church. A neighbor is not necessarily a brother or sister in Christ. And just as we are warned against passing judgment upon fellow believers for whom Christ died. So we are warned to be judgmental towards those who are perishing outside the ark of God's grace, inundated by the flood of God's wrath and judgment to come. If you frequently drive up and down Oregon Pike, especially between here and Route 30, you will be probably familiar with the not infrequent traffic jam that's caused by a large family of geese that like to transfer their deposits from the PNC bank to the M&T bank, going from the pond over to the storm drainage ditch. I must confess that I am not all that fond of geese. I enjoy birds in general, but not geese in particular. In my mind, there are way too many of them, especially in Lancaster County. They are stubborn animals, very territorial and slow, and keep me from where I want to go many a day up and down Oregon Pike. They're like some people I know. In stubbornness, in slowness, stuck in the middle of traffic and can't make a decision to go this way or that way danger all around them. Pick a side. Make a decision. Such is the plight of difficult people. They were called to be in relationship with, both inside and outside of the church. And as I battle my own frustration, I'm convicted by a similar word from the Apostle Paul to the Romans in chapter 2. 
When he says, therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. And in verse 4, he offers this. Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? I think for those of us who struggle with judgmental thoughts and attitudes, it would be wise to pay attention here as Paul addresses his own people, the Jews, who thumb their nose down upon the Gentile sinners, confronting their self-righteousness and hypocrisy, and directing us to the hope we have when we struggle with patience, when we are demanding of people to get it together, to straighten up, to just repent and believe, we are humbly reminded that it was God's kindness and patience that led us to repentance. And he beckons us to offer that same kindness and repentance to others. You and I need the riches of God's grace. And that is what James has to offer us in verses 1 through 10, what many scholars refer to as the gospel according to James, what offers a very heart-centered and humble understanding of the gospel. James opens in verse 1 with a question, what causes fights and quarreling among you? And the answer is you. The problem is you. The problem is the warring twisted desires inside your own heart. James doesn't pull any punches. James goes straight for the jugular. He says in verse 2 that our chief problem is our own covetous and murderous hearts in the likeness of Cain. Our problem is our deep self-centeredness. At the very heart of it is our pride. And he illustrates this by verse 2 when he says, you don't have because you don't ask. It's hard to ask. It's humbling to ask. It puts you in a place of dependence upon another. My wife and I will teach our kids how to ask. And sometimes we'll test them. We'll offer them an initial no to test them. If they can accept that no, we know their heart is in the right place. But if they agitate against that answer, pout or demand, that's a strong indicator that their heart is not in the right place. And I believe this is something like what James is suggesting in verse 3 when he says that you, you ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives, simply to only gratify and pursue your own selfish ambitions. And again, continuing this theme of of true heart-centered religion, in verses 4 and 5, James confronts us. He confronts our idolatry, calling us adulterous, having an affair with the world rather than intimacy with the Lord our God. And I believe that verse 5, that verse 5 may be better translated, the spirit he caused to live in us envies intensely. I believe that what James is saying here is that God has given us a strong drive. 
a strong passion, a strong desire that's so warped and twisted by the fall that our strong desire longs for everything to fill it, that nothing in this world can satisfy, only God himself. And so in our hopelessness, in our helplessness, in our bondage to self-centeredness and covetous desire, what do we need? Well, verse 6 says that God gives more grace. It's only by receiving God's grace and humility that we find rescue and salvation from our plight. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble like a little child. A few weeks ago when my parents were visiting, my father told our children a story of how when he was a little boy, maybe no more than four years old, his father bought a new car, and exploring this new car was like putting raw meat before a dog. It was irresistible. And when his father was not around, my father as a boy climbed into this car and began to play with its gadgets and its gizmos in the parking brake. Now, Atlanta, Georgia has many hills, and as you might have guessed, as he disengaged the parking brake and the clutch being in neutral, gravity took over and my father went for a joyride with this new car right down the steep driveway and into the neighbor's house across the street. Thankfully, my father's life was spared, though his rear end did not fare very well. As his father applied the rod of instruction to the seat of understanding. But like my father... We in our folly, wanting to be in the driver's seat, wanting to sit in the place of authority, make a total wreck of things. And like him, we make wrecks and messes that we cannot fix, nor, we can, nor can we pay for it, and the father must bear all the cost. A father's love prevails. A true father who will not reject his own son. And verses 7 through 10 speak to us as children the way we respond. We who are sinners, who are in need of God's grace, are called in verse 7 and following to submit to God. As we resist the devil, the devil flees for no fear of us, but fear of the Father who stands behind us. And as we make messes and we fear the rebuke of our Father and are tempted to flee, James compels us. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. You see, it's our pride that tempts us to run away, to hide in our self-pity. And yet the gospel calls us to come forward, to come clean, to seek the Father's warm embrace, in humility to acknowledge our filth, our sin-stained hearts, our warped and twisted minds that only God can set straight. There is only one place where we can receive cleansing, where we can find purification for our sins that's at the fount of blessing, the very fountain that flows with the blood of Christ, the one who died to atone for our wrongs and to make us right with our holy and just God. And what response is there but silence? Silence to our haughty laughter, our snickering over sin, but to mourn the sins that led him to the cross to bear the curse on our behalf that we might rejoice with everlasting joy and freedom in his Father's presence. 
James compels us to make ourselves low in the likeness of Christ, trusting that the Father indeed will raise us up with him and exalt us to eternal glory in his very presence. So how does the gospel of James help us? Well, for starters, it reminds us that we have nothing to boast in. We have no reason to be judgmental towards others. There was one who had every right, who had every justifiable reason to pass judgment and be judgmental. But as you observe his ministry, the Lord Jesus did not judge. Last week, Pastor De Bruin addressed one of our favorite passages, the encounter between Jesus and the Samaritan woman at the well. And as Jesus engaged with her, he did not degrade her or shame her, although he exposed her guilt as a matter for engagement in the pursuit of redemption and acceptance. And in a like manner, the Lord Jesus challenged the very leaders who brought him a woman caught in adultery to receive judgment. And as he exposed their own misdeeds and secret sins, he asked them, those of you who are without sin may cast the first stone. We have a compassionate Savior. As we sang about earlier, we have a Savior who has rendered to us grace and acceptance. We have a Savior so secure in the Father's love, delighting to share that with us, wanting us to know the same love and security in His likeness. And that acceptance and love is shown not only for the weak and the sinner's But even as Jesus rebuked the judgmental, he loved them as well. We think of Simon the Pharisee, guilty of judging a sinful woman in his own home, and yet Jesus helped him to see his own pride and self-righteousness with a parable, concluding that the one who has been forgiven little loves little. But he who has been forgiven much loves much. You see, a judgmental attitude is a reflection of one's poor grasp of the gospel. It's an indicator that the gospel roots do not go very deep. I believe that the gospel sets us free from being judgmental. As we find our worth is rooted not in our own merits, it's not based upon our own accomplishments, when the gospel frees us up from the need to prove ourselves, to compare ourselves. No longer the felt need to put others down or to elevate ourselves. The true sign, a true sign of Christian maturity, is graciousness towards others, kindness, forgiveness, and long suffering. And another sign is trusting God and leaving judgment to Him in all humility and reverence. The summer during my children's swim meets, I served as a finished judge. A finished judge is one of the judges that helps determine the order of finish as swimmers come into the wall, and it it helps with, because some of the times that are recorded by the timers are not always accurate, and uh, it's only controversial when the two finished judges from each team don't agree on the right order. And in that case, the meet official 
the high judge comes to render a verdict. And what they render is the final is their final judgment in the matter that cannot be argued. The Lord Jesus is our official. He is the final judge. He is the final ruler whose verdict matters. And while he calls us to make judgments in trivial cases and matters, we're ultimately to entrust ultimate judgment to him as we run our race. And just as swimmers are encouraged not to look around to see what other people are doing, but focus on the prize to finish, so we are being called to focus on the finish line, to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus and less concerned about what other people are doing, to not be consumed with comparison, worrying about others, but rather keeping our eyes fixed on Jesus as we cross the finish line to encourage others, to cheer others on to encourage them, to finish well, to compete according to the rules, and to keep their eyes fixed on the Lord Jesus. Trust him. Trust him who judges justly and leave judgments at his feet. And for your part and my my part, may we learn to humble ourselves. May we learn to show grace and compassion to our brothers and sisters and even Hold pity towards those who are perishing that need the gospel of grace. And as we trust him, and as we humble ourselves before him, he indeed will raise us up to meet with him in glory. Let us pray. Gracious God, our Father, our just judge, we do thank you that you have rendered your verdict that we are not guilty, that we stand righteous in the righteousness of Christ. Those of us who responded to his grace with faith and repentance. I pray that we would be a people who would live out this implication of the gospel, showing the same grace and compassion to others that you have shown to us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.